Welcome to Section Hiking the Appalachian Trail. I am your host, John Eskelson, and I'm grateful you've taken the time to listen to this podcast today. For those who want to see pictures from these adventures, please check us out on Instagram. You can find me at Section Hiking the Appalachian Trail at uh, section underscore hiking underscore the underscore AT and on Twitter at Eskelson John which is E-S-K-E-L-S-E-N-J-O-N. If you have any comments or questions you'd like to share, please share your thoughts with me as well. I look forward to hearing them. Now on with the show. This episode we are doing uh, is going to be the first of several of my recent hike along the Appalachian Trail through the 115 miles of the Shenandoah National Park. To provide some context for this hike, this is considered one of the most beautiful portions of the Appalachian Trail. It also differs greatly between the different seasons, so some of my observations in the next several episodes may not be apt beyond the fall. One of the key differences I can think of up top is that, is that when you hike Shenandoah in the spring and summer, uh, it's a lot buggier than it is in the fall, where there were virtually no bugs at all. Today we're going to discuss my first day hiking this section by talking about the start of the hike at uh, Virginia Highway 55, just north of Linden, Virginia, at mile marker 980.3, if you're heading northbound, moving towards Compton Gap at mile marker 968.5. To start, I found myself in the city of Linden, Virginia. For locals, Linden is a small town off of US uh, 66, where it is best known for having a corner with a 7-Eleven, an Exxon with a food mart, and the Apple House, which sells a lot of delightful kitsch and has a delightful restaurant, okay barbecue, and some delicious apple cider donuts at the corner of Apple Mountain Road and uh, Virginia Highway 55. This is about a mile south of the Appalachian Trail. I would note for you that the Apple House only has Pepsi products for fountain drinks, if that's something that matters to you. North of these businesses, you get to Fiery Road, where on one corner you find the Giving Tree, a market that provides fresh fruit and vegetables and meats, as well as fresh made pies. It's a delightful place to visit. And across the street is the U.S. Post Office, where you can pick up and send resupply packages. And I guess if you're on the trail, you can do all your mailing needs there, too. As you continue north along Virginia 55 or the John Marshall Highway, I got to the trail via a small parking lot on the south side of the road. It is here that I started to hike on the morning of October 16th. Walking into the woods, the first thing I noted is that you can still hear road sounds from uh, US 66 for nearly the first three miles. It dies down by the time you get to the Jim and Molly Denton shelter, but it takes about two plus miles for it to kind of go away. There are a lot of birds chirping in the morning as I gradually climbed the low hills leading up into uh, the Shenandoah area. I crested the first hill and entered a clearing on the top of a small ridge just after mile marker 979.1. I passed a sign on the trail that said this territory was part of the area under the control of Captain Mosby's territory from the Civil War. I found this to be curious and did some quick, quick research on the man. Indeed, John S. Mosby was a Virginian who was against secession, 
but joined the Confederate, Confederate Army as a private at the start of the war. He joined up with the cavalry and eventually became a captain in March 1863 after he captured a number of Union soldiers and officers without firing a shot. The area near the trail in Northern Virginia became known as Mosby's Confederacy because he and his men led quick strikes against Union, uh, against the Union, blending into the farmland afterwards. After surviving the war, Mosby turned back to his previous profession as a lawyer and eventually became a Republican who supported the campaigns of President Ulysses S. Grant. Uh, I guess that that was more diversion than I anticipated. At approximately one point miles into the hike, I came upon a field on the edge of the trail. It looked like it was used for sleeping, the sort of plateau you could descend going as you descend going uh, southbound and heading up, uh, heading northbound. It seemed like a really nice little camping spot in a grassy area. I went further down through the field and crossed the road, and just on the other side was a stream about mile marker 978.1. It was just after 2.5 miles in that I met my first hiker. She was an older lady from Waynesboro who was hiking solo to Harper's Ferry. Shortly thereafter, at mile marker 977.3, I came up to the first shelter I experienced the Jim and Molly Denton shelter. It has one of the nicest layouts I've seen so far, including uh, the beautiful shelters I hiked past in Pennsylvania. There was a deck out front with chairs, a privy, and a shower even. Pretty nice. There are two guys staying there heading southbound, one from New York and one from New Jersey. They said they'd be right behind me, but I didn't, never saw them again on the trip. Incidentally, this is a perfect location for a quick overnighter if you're looking to do a short hike, spend the night, and head back out the next day. For the next couple miles, the trail gradually goes up and down, but has long stretches of flat. I'll also note in my pictures on the, in, on the Instagram site, um, you'll notice that I'm wearing my Seattle Seahawks hat. I got a lot of supportive compliments on the, on the team for this trip, which was nice. They're having a good year. At mile marker 975 and a half, about five miles in, there's a sign for Mosby Campground named again after the Confederate Captain Mosby I mentioned before. Just after that, I hiked over a gravel road, and about nine, mile marker 973, or about seven miles in, I came across Bear Hollow Creek on my left-hand side as I walked along the trail. It looks like, I mean, the creek was pretty low when I got there, but depending on the time of year, it seems like it'd be, it could be a pretty strong stream. Finally, as I kept along the path and walked along the stream, I found myself at US 522 at the trailhead leading into Front Royal. This is the traditional stopping point for a lot of northbound section hikers, at least anecdotally, uh, before they go, if they're to stop or if they're going to go on before they go into Harpers Ferry. I found myself at mile marker 972.1, having hiked 8.5 miles for the day uh, at a small river crossing about 100 yards from the trailhead. Um, just outside of Front Royal. It also sits next to a reservoir. I'd hiked for about four and a half hours at that point and had my first lunch. The sun was shining, it was warm, birds were singing. I will admit I was more than a little tired. Front Royal is considered one of the key towns in Virginia along the Appalachian Trail. It is quaint, it has a post office, although it's not exactly in the same direction as everything else. Again, you can do your mailing and resupply through it. 
but there are also numerous restaurants and stores, including a couple of outfitters uh, to provide you everything that you need if you're along the route here. Um, if you like big box stores, they got big box stores, they got everything else that you need. There's also numerous hotels uh, for those who want to spend the night. These locations are spread out over a broad area, however. Um, there is a trolley in the summer. I believe it's from May 1st to July 31st. I guess that's when the bulk of the people come through who hike the Appalachian Trail every year. Uh, these locations, uh, the trolley will take you to and from the trailhead from town. It's uh, for 50 cents a person. And there's also several other shell companies, including Sharon Shuttles, uh, Yellow Cab of Shenandoah, and Nina Murphy's uh, Shuttle Service, among others. So I sat there at the trailhead eating my lunch for about 40 minutes before beginning to hike again. And at this point, you really start walking, uh, going up into the mountains because this is where you actually get to Shenandoah. And I arrived about the 10 mile market where there's a stream with a waterfall at mile marker 970. And then about a half a mile later, I came across one of the breakaway areas for the Tom Floyd Wayside. Uh, which has a number of campsites associated with it um, in the vicinity. Um, but you're going up one of the steepest steepest areas of the, of the entire Shenandoah Mountain, at least heading southbound through a series of switchbacks. Um, and so it's worth taking one's time to just, you know, mosey on up there. But I looked up uh, about two-tenths of a mile further up the mountain uh, and found a short trail that led to the wayside itself. It's a really, again, nice and clean place to put one's head. There's a fireplace, a bear pole, and a trail to a nearby spring, the Ginger Spring, which is about 800 feet off the trail. I didn't need water at, the, at that time. I had plenty, so I chose to skip looking at, uh, going and checking out the spring. One of the things that piqued my interest about the Tom Floyd Wayside in its environs was the simple fact that this is a relatively steep area. As I mentioned, there's a number of switchbacks. I was still trying to find my trail leg legs and, my, and I was really tired. As I popped up over the ridge though, I was very pleased to see it level out until I came up to a bunch of rocks that uh, you gotta climb up uh, on, onto the trail in order to get into the northern boundary of the Shenandoah National Park, which is at mile marker 968.5. The rocks were beautiful, but seriously, after 12 or so miles hiking that day, they're really quite steep to climb over. It was here I met a couple of fellow backpackers. They were heading out of the park after several days of hiking, um, and they were going to the Tom Floyd Wayside, which we'll shortly, shortly see as one of the better places to camp. At the boundary itself, there's a self-registration station, and I was supposed to get a backcountry permit there. However, as I found out, there were no more permits to be had, which is annoying, so I pressed on. I figured the next time I could find a ranger or they could get me a permit, um, especially uh, seeing that, that they're free, that no one would you know, cause me any problems. The guys I had met up with said they hadn't seen a ranger the entire trip on, the, on their hike. And frankly, I only saw one and it was in the southern part of the park. So I, I guess the rangers don't do that much. Sorry, I guess they don't do that much policing of backcountry hikers. The only other items I noted um, was a form that depicted the park rules for backcountry camping. Here are the rules. 
Sleeping is limited to 14 consecutive days in the park to any one location. If you can't sleep in a designated campsite, please use Leave No Trace uh, for dispersed camping. Please limit yourself to one night and make sure that you are 20 minutes, 20 yards from the trail, prefer preferably out of view. Note, there are many established campsites that are in fact right on the trail. Uh, be a quarter mile from any park facility, road, campground, lodge, visitor center, and picnic areas. Be 10 yards from any water source, 50 yards from other camping parties, building ruins or no camping signs, and not within any designated non-camping locations. There's also a very specific picture with guidance as to how one is supposed to hang their food to avoid having it stolen or eaten by bears or other non-bear creatures who like to eat human food. Here's the problem. There are a lot of young trees and most do not have the kind of branches that one is expected to utilize to hang one's food. It was a problem that I noted several times along the way. You can see a picture of this back uh, country rule guide on the Shenandoah National Park website or a picture of it from my Instagram page. With no backcountry pass but a set of rules to incorporate into my newfound life on the trail, I continued hiking. It's flat um, and it goes straight uh, towards the Campton Compton Gap parking lot, which is at mile marker 966.5. About a quarter mile before you get to the parking lot, there's a turnoff. Um, and I thought I could camp there at a night at what's known as the Indian Springs. I thought it was a shelter. It is not. It is a maintenance shed with no camping anywhere near the shelter. Blurg. Fortunately for me, there was a spring nearby. And as I went to the spring, I noticed there was an area that was already a, a, an established grassy place that had clearly been used previously for camping by others. So that's where we stopped. Now being October, the sun sets, sets <laughs> being October, the sun sets earlier than I liked. Um, it would easily get dark by 7 p.m. So I made dinner and I ate it. I chatted with various folks who came by to get water from the spring. I would note that the spring was not very strong, at least in October. Um, it is unclear to me whether this is because it was always this way or if it had been dry or because it had been dry for a while, whether it was fall and that the water table was low. But um, anyway, there it was. Lots of folks would come up and uh, to see the leaves turning. It was a beautiful weather. And there's a bunch of people who came and visited the spring on their way back to their cars. I had a guy who looked really fit um, come by and tell, tell me that he had hiked all the way from Thornton's Gap, averaging 16 minute miles, uh, which is about 24 miles um, away from, from where we were, which is quite impressive. Uh, once I finished eating and I got cleaned up, I went inside to the tent with my gear and my food. There, like I said, there weren't really any trees nearby where I could hang my food. And there's a compelling, there's been some compelling arguments about sleeping with one's food by uh, a number of through hikers I follow and have followed. And so I thought, what the heck? I read a little bit in my book that I brought and then by 7.30 after it was dark, I had fallen asleep. I woke up 
around 2.30 in the morning to some big heavy noises outside. Now, I will admit and let you know right now that I don't know what the creature was outside. I don't know if it was a bear. But it made huffing noises that were vaguely bear-like. And while I don't know what it was, I know it wasn't human. I know that it was big. I was trying to figure out how to handle the situation. And I remember what um, Thunderstruck, um, the girl I met in Pennsylvania at the Appalachian Trail Midpoint earlier that summer, did and thought about um, her reactions. So I did basically the same. First, I turned on my light. Um, my tent has a way to illuminate the whole tent um, with your headlamp. And so I did that. And the thing, whatever it was, got a little bit startled and stepped back into the, the uh, stream or the spring area. And it sounded like a big step into water. It wasn't like a dainty little step. So I turned my light on, then off, then on again. And then I flipped through my phone, wishing I had some ACDC on it or something heavier than I did. And so I looked for the loudest song on my phone and I found um, a, a song by a band named Cracker called Low and I played that. But then I started looking for something even louder and perhaps more potentially obnoxious to a large creature and found the song uh, by Beck, uh, Devil's Haircut, and played that as loud as possible. After playing that song twice and flashing my light on and off, whatever it was gave three big snorts then left. Needless to say, it was hard to get back to sleep for a while. But eventually I managed. I think a combination of the adrenaline and fear that I had kept me up, but it was also the fact that I went to bed so early and by that point had slept over six hours. So, you know, I mean, it was terrifying uh, because it was my first night and I kept all my food in the tent. There's again, several people who made arguments that we should do that. And there was no trees to hang my food. And I kept my food in my tent. Um, but in that moment of fear, I prayed and made a promise to God that I would do things to not, you know, not do stupid stuff that would put me at harm's risk for the rest of this trip if he would help me. And that I would better protect my food. And eventually I was able to fall back asleep until morning. We'll talk about life past Compton's Gap in the next episode. So aside from the animal that night... Um, Let's just talk about things that went well and things that could have been improved. Okay, what went well? For a first night, the setup was fine. I have practiced hiking with this kit and pretty much stuck with it. I did make a couple changes to my pack. Um, for those who don't know, I pack with a, I, I hike with a REI Flash 55 pack, which is great. Um, normally, I strip it down to its bare minimum um, because you just don't need all the little pockets and gizmos. Um, I did add the the top case, the the kind of the junk drawer of the uh, pack at the very top and I also thought well, I'm gonna be using my phone a lot to take notes and pictures Why don't I they have a little kind of little case that you can put your phone in? 
but that didn't really fit all that well and it was really hard and obnoxious so i i took that off and stuffed it in my pack and carried that dead weight of <laughs> less than an ounce um so anyway all in all all that walk worked out fine um at my campsite the ground was flat the dinner was pretty good um i was exhausted the gym time i'd put in uh helped uh, walking the dog at four miles a time, you know, several days a week was helpful, but you know, it's not the same as hiking 14 miles in a day with elevation. So I felt like it was all good. Uh, dinner, I had, um, some backpackers pantry, chicken pad thai. That was also pretty good for those who have listened to earlier podcasts. I don't very much like oatmeal, so I didn't bring any, any with me for breakfast rather choosing two protein bars, um, which I love and it's a little heavy from a weight perspective, but otherwise good. So again, animal aside, um, you know, I think things overall went well. Um, and, and there were several problems also. So the one I'll mention today in this episode involves my snacks. Now this might seem trivial, but I had spent a lot of time trying to balance out, you know, protein, sugar, you know, basically figure out my macros, proteins, fat, sugars, and balancing them all throughout, throughout the hike um, and how much I would eat throughout the day. And I'd planned to have about two ounces of dark chocolate peanut M&Ms and about two ounces of beef jerky every day. The problem was that I had run out of plastic baggies to store everything in. Now I'm no environmentalist, but I don't believe in wasting plastic either. So I thought, well, I can just put these two together. And let me tell you, that was a terrible decision. The candy coating on the M&Ms came off and I think it was because of the salt in the beef jerky and it made the beef jerky all goopy and the jerky got all messy and everything was just all gross because it was also warm. I mean, it, was, it wasn't like it tasted bad to eat, but it made a big mess. And it's hard to do, I mean, just the goopiness and everything was hard to eat when you're trying to eat on the move. Um, so that's what I'll talk about. Didn't go well this day. I mean, there are other things and you'll get to hear about them later, but this is, this is the thing that I noticed right away. So when I was thinking about what questions would be most pertinent to the listener of this issue, it was not um, hard to come up with the question, uh, what do you do when you encounter a large animal or some large creature in or near my campsite at nighttime? Uh, researching this question led me to a number of different interesting websites, including one that discussed 11 steps for surviving a wolf attack. Uh, yikes. Uh, but since it was involving a bear or what I imagined was a bear, um, the wisdom of the internet seemed to have consolidated the following pieces of advice. Uh, number one, bearsmart.com recommends avoiding all interactions with bears and other wild animals on the trail as much as possible. This seems obvious, but this one and several websites did feel the need to include it as a prereq. Apparently there are more than a few humans who believe that bears are our friends um, when really they are not and they are wild creatures that have not been domesticated, nor do they share uh, American norms. 
Okay. I wouldn't have included that myself, but apparently that is needed. Number two, the website blueridgeoutdoors.com recommends moving uh, scents from food and other camp supplies from the campsite. And that makes sense. I saw this at several places. It's echoed, uh, for instance, from uh, famed backpacker Andrew Skirka. One way to do this is to cook your food someplace other than where you sleep, which I probably should have done, but I didn't. Uh, we did this in the Adirondacks, um, keeping our food elsewhere and cooking elsewhere uh, from where we slept. Number three is don't stay near a place where bears or other animals eat. So I was sleeping at a spring where a bear or other large animal would likely to drink. I did it because I was tired and had gotten to where I had wanted to be, and perhaps that was a mistake. I probably should have found a more suitable place to sleep for the night. But here's what I did right. I did the following three things right, which I feel good about. Number four is shine a light. Um, some recommend getting out of your tent and shining a light directly onto the creature, um, which I thought was interesting, but I did shine a light. Uh, number five is make a big noise. I did that to the best of my ability. I promise I will also uh, find uh, some music that where I can make a bigger noise in the future. And number six, stay calm, especially if you're confronting a black bear. Now, again, I don't know if it was actually a bear or not, um, but I did stay calm, at least inside my tent, um, although I was internally terrified. And then there's uh, a couple more that I'd like to highlight. Uh, if needed, use bear spray, and I'll need to figure out whether I need to get some of that for the future. Um, and if you are attacked by a bear, particularly a brown, uh, not brown bear, grizzlies, no, but black bears, fight like you've got nothing to lose, um, which I think I would do. Uh, number eight is if you're on the trail and you come across a bear, back away slowly, giving the bear a path to get away. Uh, number nine is avoid hiking at dawn or dusk. Um, I guess bears typically like to go to bed uh, shortly in the evening, um, which is one of the reasons why I think this might not have been a bear because it was at like 2.30 or three in the morning. Um, and then number 10, one site recommended having some sort of dryer sheet with you as animals hate the smell. So there's that. So the question to those who listen to the podcast, have you ever had an experience where you experienced, have you ever had an experience where you came across a large animal on the trail? Uh, what did you do and how did it work out for you? Um, ostensibly you're alive because you otherwise wouldn't be listening to this podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode of section hiking the Appalachian trail. I'm glad you took time to listen uh, and learn more about the trail and the adventures that me and my friends have along it. If you'd like, please subscribe to this podcast to hear more of the adventures we have as we go along and section hike the Appalachian Trail. Also, feel free to leave a review and give us a rating. We welcome your feedback. Finally, don't forget to follow us on Instagram at sectionhikingthead or follow me on Twitter at Eskelson John. Until next time, happy trails.